Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together this beautiful Sabbath morning. For the snow that fell to remind us that you can make us whiter than snow. And Father, as we turn our hearts to you and your word today, may you communicate to us that which we need to know, that which we need to hear. And may you give us clarity on what your will is for our lives. And that we might follow that, follow that will with all our hearts. May Jesus be lifted up. May the Holy Spirit speak now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have one job. To begin, I want to share a little bit with you about a fascinating human being, an individual that I have taken a great interest in. And that man is the the man by the name of Elon Musk. Who here has heard of Elon Musk? Okay, all right, a few of you. For those of you who know who he is, he is the CEO of what company? Yeah, most people are like, yeah, Tesla. Yeah, Tesla Roadster, right? Semi-truck. It's like so cool. Well, he is the CEO of Tesla. That just happens to be one company that he's in charge of. And we think of Tesla as a car company, and that's sort of how they got started. But Tesla is a renewable energy company. They have solar panels. They have invented solar roof tiles that can generate power while being a roof tile. Battery packs. They recently launched or opened the biggest battery system in South Australia. And he's talking about rebuilding the power infrastructure for the island of Puerto Rico after the big hurricane that came through. That's Tesla. Renewable energy. That's nice. I'm not necessarily saying that you should agree or not agree with him. I'm just simply describing what he does. Well, he's in charge of another company called SpaceX. Stands for Space Exploration. This company has a vision to take people to Mars. That's nice. They pioneered the technology or the ability to reuse rockets. Because if you are familiar, you remember when we launch people into outer space, to the moon, let's say, the big booster rockets that fire them up out of, to escape uh, the gravitational field of the Earth, when it detaches, it just falls back into the ocean, and it's a one-use thing. So you spend millions of dollars, you build this rocket, you fly it up there, and then that's it. And so SpaceX says, if we are going to send people to Mars and to explore the galaxy, so to say, we have to bring the cost down, and that's only possible if we can reuse our rockets. So you've probably seen the YouTube videos. Now they, te- uh, not Tesla, sorry, SpaceX, they can fly this giant rocket up into space, deploy the satellites, and then it fires the reverse boosters, and it comes back, and it lands back on its landing pad. It's pretty surreal stuff. So that's his second company. There's a third uh, business, if you will, that he is involved with. He's actually involved with a lot of other things. I'm only talking about three. And this one is called Neuralink. Neura as in like neurons. And link, what is he linking our neurons to? Well, the simple answer is he's a big investor in this technology to link our human brain with computers. The idea is to basically turn us into cyborgs and to make us have enhanced human intelligence. Now, why is that significant? It's because he believes 
that sooner or later, artificial intelligence will surpass human intelligence. And so we, to keep up, we have to be able to interface with computers. That's his reasoning. He's not the CEO, but he's a big investor in that technology. He's also involved with what's called the boring company. You know, they drill holes under the ground to alleviate traffic. Uh, the Hyperloop, super fast, uh, supersonic transportation, firing little pods that you ride in through tubes of vacuum space. Lots of other stuff that he's involved with. So why am I telling you all this? This guy sounds like a sci-fi movie hero or villain. <laughs> but he's a real guy. You can go on Google, you can see interviews by him on YouTube. So when we look at his portfolio, right, the stuff that he's involved with, SpaceX, Tesla, Neuralink, let's just look at these three. We look at them and they seem so random. It makes no sense. Like, why are you doing all of this stuff? Like, for one person to even have success in one of these areas, to make electric cars, that seems pretty, pretty amazing already. But why is he going hither and yon? Why is it he's just sort of doing all of this random stuff? Is he just crazy? Does he just have too much money that he doesn't know what to do with it? Or is there a purpose? Is there a reason to the madness? Is there an order that makes sense of this chaos? So let me step back a little bit. Let's talk about the big picture. Elon Musk has gone on record to say, and I'm going to be interpreting somewhat of what he said. He operates from a, a set of very strongly held beliefs. And these beliefs originate out of a very secular, atheistic, naturalistic worldview, meaning he's not a Christian. He looks at science, and he takes science as the ultimate truth. He does not share an understanding and belief in the Bible as we do. And he looks at the world around him, and he realizes that this world cannot last forever. Put in other words, this earth at some point, will become uninhabitable for the human race. What are the reasons for that? Number one, he believes in climate change. I'm not here to say you have to agree with him. Don't shoot me. <laughs> this is not a political discourse. That's simply what he believes. He believes that with the climate change, and he does believe that it is a man-made phenomenon, we are going to destroy the earth. And not only that, he believes that the human invention of artificial intelligence, if left to run wild, is an existential risk to human survival. Maybe he's played too many video games, maybe he's watched too many movies, but that's what he believes. And maybe, and he's smarter than I am, so maybe he knows something that I don't know, but that's what he believes. The earth, this planet, cannot last forever. Either we're going to destroy ourselves through climate change, or we're going to destroy ourselves by creating machines that are smarter than us. And as a result, as a result, what's the only solution in his mind? This is how he puts it. Elon Musk believes that the only solution is to make mankind a interplanetary species. That's fancy for saying we need to be able to live on other planets. So, 
taking a step back, looking from the core worldview that he possesses and the beliefs that he has, this world is not going to last forever, and the only way that we can survive is if we go colonize other planets, all of a sudden, all of this stuff that he does makes perfect sense. So why have Neuralink? Because he wants to prevent machines from taking over. Why invest in renewable energy like solar panels and batteries and and electric cars, so that we will not destroy the planet as quickly to delay the destruction. And why, why SpaceX? Why have reusable rockets? Why is that such a big deal? Because he believes the only chance for us to survive as a species is if we go and we live among the stars. Again, I am not saying that I agree with it. <laughs> I don't. But I do find it fascinating that we can find so much order and so much complexity in the life of one man when we realize that his beliefs leads him to a very clear and defined life purpose. He's a CEO of many uh, companies, investing here, board member there. He's involved with dozens of initiatives, but When you boil it all down, Elon Musk has only one job. His one job, in his mind, is to save the human race, for lack of better words. Elon Musk has a life mission, and this one overarching purpose informs, it guides, it orders, it prioritizes all other decisions in his life. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles with me now to Matthew chapter 28. Because here's the point of this message as you're turning there. The message that I have to share with you today is very simple, and that is that we too have only one job. God has placed us on this earth to accomplish one and only one thing. And when we come to realize what that is, that understanding can also, should also bring order, priorities, and a reason for every other decision that we make in life. What's that one mission? Well, my Bible tells me that when Jesus Uh, before he ascended to heaven, he talked to his disciples and he gave them what we call now the Great Commission. What What did he say? Verse 19, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So right before Jesus left this earth, he looked at his disciples, the the leaders of this church that he is setting up, the church to which we belong today. So through those representatives of the disciples, Jesus says, I am leaving now, and I have one task that I am leaving you to do. And what's that task? Make disciples. Teach them to observe all things. To boil it down, Jesus says, preach the gospel. That's the one thing you have to do. And guess what Jesus did when he lived on this earth? What was the one mission he had? To preach the gospel. And so 
This commission we have to understand, we have to remember, it's not merely a mission for the collective body, the corporation of the church. Even though that's true. General conference sessions. What's the number one agenda item? Preaching the gospel. Local church board meeting. What's the number one priority of the church board? Evangelism. But more important than that is the individual mandate that we see here. Jesus looks at every single individual. He says, yeah, go make disciples. You were once baptized into the church, and you now are a disciple of Jesus. Now go and make more disciples. So the mission that's given to the church at large, but the church as far as individual church members go, is the same. Go preach the gospel and make disciples. So that begs the question, so what's the big deal? Why? Why is this the most important singular mission that Jesus has given to us? Well, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Reading the words of Jesus again, Matthew 24 and verse 14, in beautiful simplicity, Jesus gives us the reason. Verse 14, Matthew 24, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. So if I could put it in in these terms, that which we just read is just another way of saying what Jesus said in the Great Commission. You see what what I'm saying here. Preach the gospel To all the nations as a witness is the same thing as a great commission. And then Jesus tacks on this at the end that explains why this is important. Once this gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. The preaching of the gospel has a direct relationship with the coming of the end, also known as the second coming of Jesus. When we look at the life of Elon Musk and how he makes his decisions, how he chooses what to invest his time, energy, money, resources into, we see that it is driven by a singular life purpose, to save the human race. As disciples of Jesus, he has given us the mission. And the mission is to save the human race. And the the only way that the human race can be saved is if they become an interplanetary species. The only way that this world of sin can be brought to a conclusion and that humanity can move on is if we leave this planet. Can somebody say amen? The reality is from his secularistic, atheistic worldview, Elon Musk realizes something that we have been told all along. The solution he sees is we need to have battery electric cars, we need to have rockets to fly us to space. We say the only way that we can get off this planet is if Jesus comes to take us. And the only way that's going to happen is if we fulfill our mission. Preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people so they have a choice to accept salvation through the free grace that's offered in the life of Jesus Christ. And here, in the book Education, page 262, I read this statement. Success in any line demands a definite aim. He would achieve true success in life must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of his endeavor. 
such an aim is set before the youth of today. So when we think about these sort of high-flying concepts and principles and ideas, a lot of times we fail to apply it to our lives. And when we think about what God, what do you want, what's your will for my life? What do you want me to do with my life? We guess, we wonder, we pray, we seek advice. Well, guess what? God has already told us what his will is. Let me finish reading this passage. In no uncertain terms, it makes it crystal clear what every single one of our life purpose is. It says, the heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. So both we read from the Bible, Matthew 24, Matthew 28, we didn't even go there, Revelation 14, as well as the book Education tells us the same thing. Every single one of us, we do not have to guess what God's will is for our lives. He's already made it clear. That will is for us to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel not only someday, but in this generation. And so, this should color every decision we make in our life. It should affect every priority that we have in life. How so? How so? I want to share one more quote with you, and then we're going to try to make things a little bit more practical. In the book, Ministry of Healing, page 363, paragraph 1, it says this, The gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. Its instruction heeded would make plain many a perplexity and save us from many an error. It teaches us to estimate things at their true value and to give the most effort to the things of greatest worth, the things that will endure. I love that first sentence. The gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. You know, I think many of us, particularly those of you who are now getting ready to conclude your college career, life seems like it's one giant perplexing problem. So many decisions, so many options. What am I going to do? Where should I go? Who should I marry? What career should I pick? Why is life so difficult? We wonder, and is it true? Can, can we take this promise at face value? Is it true that the gospel can simplify all of life's problems? Well, let me try to illustrate that to you now. I believe that gospel and the mission of preaching the gospel gives us an overarching umbrella, a filter, if you will, through which we can run every decision, and it makes very complex and perplexing things very simple. To illustrate, I want to look at the life of Paul. Let's go back to our scripture reading for today in Acts chapter 26. In Acts, the 26th chapter, the Apostle Paul is giving a defense before the court. And as a part of his defense, he's telling his testimony. The testimony of when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. What does Jesus say? Verse 15. Let's begin in verse 15 of Acts 26. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, 
both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I have yet to reveal to you. So when Paul was knocked off on his horse, Jesus appears to him and says, look, get up. I am giving you a job. Can you see that? For I have appeared to you for this purpose. Paul, you've been going one direction. I'm going to stop you right there. And I'm going to tell you you've been doing the wrong thing. I'm going to turn you around. And I'm going to set you on the right path. And I'm going to have you working for me now. I'm not going to give you five things to do. I'm not going to give you three things to do. I'm not even going to give you two things to do. You've got one job. One and only one. What's that job? Let's keep reading. Verse 17. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In fewer words, Jesus says, get up. You're getting a new job assignment. You have one and only one job. And what's that job? Preach the gospel. Specifically to the Gentiles. But Paul here is receiving this purpose, this mission, the same mission Jesus gave to the disciples. How does that affect the rest of his life? Let's take a look. Acts chapter 16. This one mission that God placed before Paul now colors, it impacts, it facilitates every other decision he makes in his life. Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. And a vision came to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So what would you do if you all of a sudden had a strange dream? Or let's just bring it to modern day uh, language. You get a Facebook message from a random person saying, please come and help us. What would be your response? I know what I'd do. I'd say, who are you? Is this a scam? Are you trying to Yank my chain? Are you trying to, you know, deceive me? Rob me? And even if it's a legitimate call, I'd be thinking, okay, well, how am I going to support my family? Am I going to leave them here? Can I bring them with me? How long is this going to be? What's going on? Why do you need me to go? Is there someone else that can do it? Right? We're asking all of these questions. But Paul, he gets this vision. A man from Macedonia saying, come help us. Verse 10. How does he respond? Now, after he has seen the vision, what's, what's the next word? Immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see his reasoning process, okay? It's not explicitly stated, but Paul says, or Paul hears this vision. He sees this vision. Someone from Macedonia, someone he doesn't know, some place he's never been. He realizes, Macedonia, has the gospel ever been preached there? No, it hasn't. What has God called me to do with my life? To preach the gospel. Okay, I'm going. There was no vacillating. There was no discussion because the mission God has given him was in harmony with this option on the table. So he did it. Well, let's take a look at another example in his life. Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 
Paul's in Rome now, way later in his ministry. He's a prisoner. He's under house arrest. He's supposed to wait for a a hearing because he appealed to Caesar. He's imprisoned, and he's been imprisoned for a long time. He doesn't know if he's ever going to get released. He doesn't know if anything will change with the circumstance, whether he'll ever get to talk to Caesar. It, to all, for all intents and purposes, his ministry looks like it is over. It looks as though he had made a mistake because there were brethren, if you remember the story, that said, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get captured. There were people who pleaded with Paul, for the sake of your mission, for the sake of preaching the gospel, don't get yourself caught. Well, he went and got himself caught. Verse 30, we're going to begin reading. Paul is in Rome. He has, he's, he's under house arrest. He's under great perplexity. There's no, it's uncertain whether or not he will ever be free. In a moment like that, it, I would be discouraged. I would be questioning myself, saying, have I made a mistake and have I compromised? Have I gone the wrong way? That's not what Paul thought. Verse 30, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things with, which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Because he understood the mission that God has given to him, Paul said, even though I'm a prisoner, I'm going to keep doing what God asked me to do. And as a result, he was able to minister and to preach even <coughs> to individuals in uh, Caesar's household. You must be thinking, well, yeah, I mean, that's Paul. He had the gift of inspiration. He saw visions. He was an apostle. That's not me. How does this really impact my life practically? Okay, well, let's take a look. For lack of time, I'm not going to go there, but you can look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 7. Actually, the rest of the chapter as well. The apostle Paul is talking to those who are widowed and those who are unmarried. And the Apostle Paul actually implies strongly that it is better for the sake of the gospel to not marry. He makes that strong implication. It even says, I wish that all men were as I am, meaning unmarried, for the sake of the gospel. Now let me make this clear. I am not saying, neither is Paul saying, And the Bible does not say not to get married, okay? My point is that Paul looked at his life through the lens of the mission that God has given to him. And in his particular circumstance, he believed and he followed through with the action of not being married because he believed that was better for the sake of the gospel. Now, how many of us would even dare ask that question? Lord, surely you haven't called me to be single. But should not we be asking the question, Lord, what is best for the mission? What is most expedient for me to accomplish the one job that you have given me to do? The point is, even in something so intimate, something so close to home, Paul made the decision of his romantic relationships subservient to the mission that Jesus gave to him. Well, let's keep reading. Let's take a look at another one. This one's fascinating. 
in Acts chapter 18. Turn, turn back there with me. Acts chapter 18 and verse 3. Paul is in um, <coughs> Corinth, I believe, and he, met, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. He becomes friends with them. And verse 3 gives me something very interesting. Tells me something interesting about Paul. Verse 3 says, So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Paul stayed with Priscilla and Aquila because they were tent makers. But wait a minute. Paul was given a mission to preach the gospel. What is he doing making tents? It says his occupation, which wasn't like a hobby. It wasn't like once in a while. This was a regular mode of earning money for Paul. He was a tent maker. Doesn't this seem contradictory? Like we're making a big deal about him living under this one mission, the one thing that God asked him to do. And here he goes making tents. It's like we talk to some, you know, world-class evangelist, and he's like, well, I can't make it today. I got to go bake some cookies. Got to run my health food store. Got to, you know, sew some scarves to sell some wares on eBay or Etsy, right? We're, We're thinking, like, Paul, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You're supposed to be preaching the gospel. But wait a minute. Let's ask the question. Is it possible that Paul chose to do this, to be a tent maker, because of his mission? Let's take a look in the book 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So the Apostle Paul explains here why he chose to work for a living. It was so that he could be a better example for his converts. So in other words, the Apostle Paul chose to work as a tent maker to earn his own living to enhance his gospel ministry. So even in that decision, it was filtered through and subservient because of the mission that God has given to him. He says, I could have, I have the authority to expect you to pay me from the tithe and everything else. But no, I believe it is far better for you for me to live in this way, to enhance his ability to win souls for Jesus. How often God, or how often we ask God, what is your will for my life? Well, God has already told us what his will is for our lives, to win souls by preaching the gospel. Can it be that sometimes we find ourselves in a quandary because we're not willing to accept that fact? We're not willing to ask the question. Maybe the conflict we feel wrestling within our hearts is that we know what God has said, but it's not what we want to do. 
You know, not long ago, I was at GYC. I was backstage. I was going to have the privilege of introducing the speaker of the hour, who was none other than Pastor C.D. Brooks. So I was backstage in the green room, as they call it, sitting in chairs like this. I was sitting next to him, waiting for our turn to go up on stage. So I couldn't really go anywhere, and he was sitting right next to me. And a stream of young people were coming backstage to talk with Elder Brooks. They wanted to get his wisdom. They wanted his prayers. And there was one young man, and of course, I was sitting there, so I couldn't help but eavesdrop in some of the conversations. But there was this one young man that came in, and the young man was clearly distressed. He said, Pastor Brooks, I've been dating this girl, and I just don't know. I I just don't know if this is the right one. Please, can you help? C.D. Brooks, right? Got to give it to that man. He, he knew what to do at the, you know, free counseling with Pastor Brooks. So he came to the back. And without missing a beat, Pastor C.D. Brooks said something that I will never forget. He said, young man, I'm not even going to try to imitate his voice. He said, young man, when you accepted Jesus into your life, on that day you have already made a decision that you will never marry a woman that's no good. You've already made that decision when you accepted Jesus. So the only question now is, is this girl good, better, or best? (laughs) That's it. And of course, this young man's like, okay, so how, how do I know? This is what he said. He said, ask yourself, will this woman enable you to follow the Lord and carry out his purpose in your life? You do have a choice in who you marry. But how you measure the worth and the appropriateness of the relationship must first be evaluated on the scales of how will this union help me accomplish the work, the one and only one job that God has placed in my life to do. And is it possible that sometimes we have relationship tension? Because we didn't ask the question. We made a decision because this this girl makes me feel good. We look so good together. We just have so much fun together. But when the moment comes and you're saying, all right, Lord, I'm ready to serve you. All of a sudden, you've got this anchor tied on to someone else who never had an intent to go along with you in your mission to serve Jesus. Is it possible that maybe life would be simpler if we just accepted the rule that God's way is always the best way? Well, what about our careers? The Apostle Paul looked at his life and he said, it is better for me to work with my own hands because it will enhance my ministry. So that tells me something. Just because God called all of us to be soul winners, to preach the gospel. It doesn't mean we all have to be full-time missionaries, Bible workers, call boarders, pastors. Can I get at least one amen? I mean, like, you guys are like, what is he going to say next? But I want to be a doctor. And guess what? You can be a doctor as long as you've asked the question first, 
is this the best way for me to use my skills, my talents, my abilities to win souls for Jesus? If we're going to be adopted because we want to be filthy rich, let me tell you something. You've got a lot of heartache down this path. A lot of student loans, no less. But if you want to serve the Lord because he has placed the skills within your toolkit to be a doctor, to make man whole like Jesus did, then by all means, please don't let anybody stop you. But if we're making these decisions of a career choice, occupation, without first consulting, what's my job? I can guarantee you somewhere down the road there's going to be a small, still small voice that says, hey, What doest thou here, Elijah? And making that U-turn then is going to be a whole lot harder than making that decision now. At a youth conference not long ago, there was a speaker time. I was one of the speakers. And there was a, a couple that came. They had young children. And they needed some advice. And they were asking advice about country living. We have young children. Father's a lawyer. Worked in the city. Wife was a professional. They've got kids involved in church. But they were convicted. What do we do? Should we move out to the country? And they would just rattle off all the stuff. You know, the time of trouble is coming. I need to learn how to grow a garden. I don't know how to do that. But I'm, my kids, they've got school. And how am I going to raise my kids? Because I'm, I'm not going to have a job. And you know, All of these questions, right? Logical questions. I said, wait, 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 stop. Let me ask you this question. Which of these locations will be better for your ministry for Jesus? Because let me make something very, very clear. When we read counsel about country living, a lot of times we associate that with, we have to save ourselves. They're coming for us. They're going to hunt us down. As though living on a farm, they can't find you there. You've still got an iPhone, right? I mean, you know they can track you. The point is just this. When God calls us to move out of the cities, why is it? It is to enhance our ability to fulfill the great gospel commission. It is not salvation by country living, because that is the same thing as salvation by works. If God calls us to move our families to another location, it must correspond with making us better soul winners. Gives us the better opportunity to win the souls of our own children and to make them soul winners. So if we're thinking, oh, I have to save myself, I have to escape the time of trouble, we are not consulting the one job that God has asked us to do. And when I shared that thought with this couple, all of a sudden the light bulbs went on and they said, Praise the Lord. I don't know what they ended up deciding to do, but the Lord somehow spoke to their heart. And not only that, how do we spend our money? Do we really need to spend $1,200 on an iPhone 10 when my iPhone 6S works the same? Well, why should we, why, how do we even make that calculation? It's because God's work needs more support. Why spend the money on ourselves when there is a mission field that needs our money? Those decisions must be filtered through. What is the one job that God has given me to do? Every single decision. Our choice of friends. And let me tell you, we should have non-Avenist friends. Because that's how we win souls to Jesus. Amen? But if we're having non-Avenist friends because we're becoming like them, guess what? 
That's the wrong reason. Why do we come to church? So I can be fed. No, it's not. It's so you can get trained to go feed others. Amen? I was at that same youth conference and we had a panel discussion, questions, and there was a question that came in scribbled on a piece of paper and this young person went asking and I can tell the frustration and the, the, the genuineness of this question. This question came in. Is it okay for me as a young person, as an Adventist, to get involved with these uh, types of social causes? Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. Whatever other you know, acronyms they have out there. You know, climate change, save the animals, social justice type things. They had a list of them. And the, the questioner was genuine in the question. How do I know whether it's okay for me to participate in these things? I don't know, I can't give you a specific answer, but what I told them when I was given the mic was, does participating in these things enhance your ability to preach the three angels' messages? If it does, do it. If it doesn't, that's not God's will for your life. So even in these types of decisions of how to get involved in things that matter to us, the mission that God has given to us must supersede and be, of, be above all other considerations. The gospel is the great simplifier of life's problems. If we will only ask, what's my job? We look at guys out in the world like Elon Musk and they have the discipline to ask themselves this one question. If I spend this $1 billion, will this move us towards the goal of saving humanity? As Christians who have the true solution for a sinful world, should we not ask the same question? So ladies and gentlemen, what is your job? Are you performing it to the best of your ability? Are you making your decisions, the smaller decisions in everyday life, in harmony, in accordance, in priority, based on this one job that God has given you to do? I know I'm out of time, but I have to say this. And that is sometimes we ask God, just open the doors. I'll go through the open doors. And we frequently associate that with whatever is easiest. Whatever is the most convenient, Lord. Yeah, that's the way. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Praise the Lord. Yeah. But the easiest way, the most wide open door may not be the will of God for you. We have to ask the question, is that really going to help me accomplish the one job that God has given me to do. The door was open before Balaam to go with Balak's men. It was the easiest way, but it certainly was not God's will. On the flip side of the coin, the more difficult, just because something is difficult or a door seems closed, it may not mean that that's not God's will for you. It sure looked like a gigantic closed door for Jonah to go evangelize the Ninevites. But that was 100% what God's will was for him. 
You can look at the lives of every missionary. Every worker for God, they had obstacles. They had doors slammed in their face, figuratively and literally. But what drove them was the understanding that God has given them one and only one job to do. And even if it means I have to you know, knock this door over to, to do God's work, I'm going to do it. Whenever you got baptized into this church, maybe you're not baptized, but whenever you accepted Jesus into your life, you have been given one job to do. One and only one job. How is it with you and your Lord? Have you been faithful? Have you followed his express purpose that he's outlined in his word for you? Maybe some of you are struggling with decisions. Where do I go next? What do I do next? What about this? What about that? Lord, help me understand. I appeal to you today. Come to the Lord. Come to the feet of the cross. Take a look at those outstretched hands. See the cost of what Jesus paid so that he could fulfill the one job that his heavenly father gave him to do. And ask yourself the question, am I not willing to do the same for him? Whatever those decisions may be that you're wrestling with, ask yourself that one important question. Lord, how can I better fulfill the one mission that you've given to me to accomplish? That's it. One point sermon. One question. Lord, Help me to do my job. How many of you want to make that commitment to the Lord today? Let me see your hands. God bless you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is very clear. The work that you've assigned us to do is black and white. And Lord, we are thankful that because we are so weakened by sin, our minds cannot grasp a hundred-point plan or even a ten-point plan. You've given us just one point to remember. You have given us one job. There is one task for which you have placed us on this earth to accomplish. And Lord, may we be faithful to do it. Lord, may we preach the gospel with all our might, with all of our influence in this generation. Lord, we want you to come soon. We know you are the only solution to this sin-sick world, and may we do our part to hasten that day. And for the young people in this room who may be confused, may be concerned, may be perplexed, wondering, asking, questioning, Lord, we claim that promise that the gospel is the great simplifier of life's problems. You have a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. And so lead these young hearts, young minds into the path that you have designed for them. And Lord, may we each be found faithful that day when you come. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.